Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph Sal, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but are influencing nonprofits, education policy, and business, and are shaping how students learn. your team up for success with ISTE's professional learning resources, including ISTE-U courses, ISTE books, and ISTE certification for educators. These diverse, high-quality resources focus on the most critical topics in ed tech, like computational thinking, digital citizenship, and AI. Help your team meet learning objectives and save when you purchase ISTE professional learning resources in bulk. Get the details on these programs at ISTE.org under the Learn tab. So sitting here across from me is Manoush Zimarodi, who you probably already know from her wildly popular Note to Self podcast or her compelling book, Bored and Brilliant, which is all about how to unplug from our relentless digital lives, or her new podcast, ZigZag, that's about the culture of business and how it needs to change. And this is just scratching the surface. She's delved into privacy, big data, blockchain, and has done a deep dive on how we can take control of the technology that's ever present in our lives and so many other fascinating topics. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Joseph. So I've spent a lot of years talking to educators, helping them see the benefits of having young people engaged with digital technology in a really active way to create, to problem solve, to express their voices. I am kind of all in on that idea. My wife actually bought your book, Bored and Brilliant, Uh and she read it. And she started pushing back on me. Interesting. Yes. She was saying that you've been saying that unplugging from the digital world can actually spark greater creativity. So can you help me square these two worlds? Yeah. And I have to say my thing, I don't like the word unplugging because I think on or off is not the answer. I think it's about figuring out when. And how. So I'll just back up a little bit. Bored and Brilliant was based on a a week long project that I did with 20,000 of my listeners in 2015. And this was before anyone was really talking about, like, oh my God, I gotta get off my phone. Like, no one was talking about that. So it was based on a very simple problem that I was having, which was that I felt like I was struggling to come up with good ideas. And I, literally was like, is that because every single free moment I have, I'm looking at my phone. And what I used to do was I just used to like hang out, space out, I don't know, allow my mind to wander. And it was just those cracks in the day that start. I started to think, well, that maybe there's something important happening there because the minute I feel bored, I now look at my phone. What's yeah. happening in that? And so for me, it, you know, this is the wonderful part of being a journalist. You can go find out. So I talked to neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists who told me that actually we're at this amazing moment where we're starting to understand what happens when our minds begin to wander, when you get bored and you ignite a particular network in your brain. It's called the default mode. And it is in the default mode that we do. So this is like when you're folding socks like forever or like vacuuming or just lounging around like we never do anymore. But anyway, in the default mode, we do some of our most original thinking. We do problem solving. We do something called autobiographical planning. 
I'd never heard of this before. Right. It's really cool. It's like time traveling in your life. You look back at your Uh, past. You take note of the highs and lows. You literally tell yourself a story of how you got to be here right now. Like, and that could be last week. That could be when you were 10, anything. And then where are you going to go? You project into the future. Uh, Default mode thinking is often very future oriented. So is this why people come up with great ideas in the shower? Exactly. Ah, got it. Got to have the science to prove it's not just a fluke. Shower has magical capabilities. No, it's the one place we're not doing anything. Right. We're just standing there. Right. And then we lose track of time, right? Mm-hmm. Like we just kind of float around in our minds. So anyway, default mode, extremely important brain function, different than meditating, very different, different uh, neural network. So for me, it was asking my listeners, you know, are you feeling the same way? Do you think that for one week we could experiment with ways to get our brains into the f- default mode more often? For those who did take part, it was because we wanted to change our digital habits. We felt that that was the thing that was impacting us or keeping us from enjoying what most people think is not good, right? Like when I was growing up, it was like, oh, only boring people get bored. So you assume being bored is bad. Therefore, being distracted by your phone is good, right? I spent a lot of time trying not to be bored. So here we are and... We spend so much time on our phones. And this is my thesis, which is that we've started to get to a point where basic human states like boredom or eye contact or reflecting on something we've read or long pauses in a conversation, things that we've taken for granted as adults, we suddenly are seeing that the technology doesn't prioritize those things. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make space for them. And it feels really weird. It's like the negative space in our lives. We need to name it and go there. So And, And value it. And value it. Exactly. We have to change the way we think of the language. So I had one teacher who told me that his seven-year-old, after they like talked about whatever, I don't think the kid read the book, obviously, but like talked to his dad. And he says that his kid now, when he goes to take a bath, he says that he's heading for the default mode, (laughs) which is great. If that's what, you know, like use language as it feels productive to you. And so I really want to be clear that the message is not tech bad, humans good. No, no. It's when is the tech serving you? When is it helping you be creative? When is it augmenting you, which is what it's supposed to do, not when is it taking over your very wonderful human capacities. Yeah, that makes sense. It's comforting Mm -hmm. that it's not an online, offline divide necessarily. Agreed more about where your mind is. Yeah, totally. That's a good point, actually. I hadn't really thought of it that way because you could come up with something amazing while you're spacing out that requires doing, executing something online, right? Like that's totally legit. I just feel so... Uh, jealous of kids to these days who now have these amazing tools at their disposal. And like for me, it was like the stuffy computer science classroom. Yeah, I can remember when I took computer science, we learned how to make dot matrix printer print checks. Nice. It was not awesome. Yeah. So speaking (laughs) of the awesome tools that kids have today, you yourself are a digital creator. And this is a concept that we talk about a lot at ISTE. And I'm just amazed at the tools available to young people. That's awesome. And there's so much they can do. But I still think when we think about like raising a child or school, we sort of think of digital creation as kind of a cool, nice thing that they could do. I'm really curious, in your mind, is this something that's nice to have or is it actually something so important that kids should have digital creation skills? 
I mean, I don't think that there's any other way. I'll use my own life as an example. I'm a journalist. I'm now a small business owner. And you need basic skills in order to be able to function in the world as an adult. The act of writing a LinkedIn profile is digital creation. You know, how do you craft sentences that are compelling? How do you tell the story of your experience? How do you present yourself to the world? That is digital creation. I think a lot of, you know, this is the great side of social media in some ways. I think a lot of kids are learning how to condense and present information very quickly and I worry they lose some of the nuance, obviously, but let's look at the bright side for now, that there is this ability to represent yourself in a certain way or to be creative very quickly and efficiently and use those tools very quickly. The nuance part, I think, is very important. Um, We can get into that later. You know, I I think I set up my own business with my co-founder a year ago and immediately I was like, oh, I'm the IT department. You know what right. I mean? Like we had G Suite and Asana and Slack and the list just goes on and on and on of like our stack essentially right. to be a small business person. And my lovely mother was like, I wouldn't be able to do this. It would be very hard for anyone over a certain age who didn't have that uh, basic knowledge to be able to exist as an entrepreneur. Yeah, it actually makes me think when our parents or maybe our parents' parents Mm -hmm. were young, they had to learn all kinds of skills, Mm -hmm. right? Especially if they were on a farm or, you know, out there, even if they just had a family garden that actually sustained them. Yes. They didn't just like go to school and then to college, they had a wide variety of really hands-on skills. And in a really interesting way, it feels like it's coming back around. You mean in terms of valuing that ability to do that? Valuing that ability and actually, in my mind, needing to be able to do more than just schoolwork, if Uh that makes sense. uh Right? Like we have to be able to craft our own tools um, and accomplish our own work in ways that maybe other people have sort of done for us. That's interesting. I feel conflicted about that. Like my third grader had to do a PowerPoint and she was loving it. She was putting cat pictures in there and like funny transitions and different fonts and really enjoying it. And part of me was like, this is great. Like she's learning to tell a story through pictures and present multimedia things. Right. On the other hand, I'm like, really? My kid's in third grade. She has to make a PowerPoint already. She's let's hope that this is not the beginning of the rest of her life making PowerPoints, right? Because we all know as adults how like tedious that can be. Sure. So I feel super conflicted about right time, right place. Would she have been better off spending that afternoon like writing an essay or drawing pictures? Yeah. She might have. That's a great question. I'm not sure. I don't don't know that we know that answer yet. No. It's interesting times we live in. And I that I think is where we have a particular responsibility in that we're at that crucial moment mm-hmm. where we finally have enough data right. <laughs> in that like the technology has been around, like social media has been around for a while now. The smartphone has been around for 12 years. And I think you see it across the board in terms of parents feeling ambivalent. You see it on Capitol Hill where lawmakers are like, crap, we need to get involved in this. Is it regulation? Is it privacy policy? Is it antitrust measures? Is it, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. You see it with teachers trying to figure out what their role or responsibility is in this. You see it with kids like wanting to be rebellious in some ways, but also in other ways, really enjoying and rightly so some of it. We're at an amazing crossroads and I'm enjoying trying to help steer it, I hope, in a more 
humanitarian direction. That's the most important thing, I think. So when it comes to teachers, yeah. in your mind, given that there's things we just don't know, what aspects of technology would you encourage them to embrace? Mm. And what aspects might you suggest they be cautious about? Yeah, I don't like, well, I'll give you an example. The one-to-one stuff, I'm not a huge fan. I think one of the most important things that kids get out of being in school is um, social emotional skills. And they offer at my my middle schoolers school, one of the math classes is only it's headphones on one to two hours a day. And it's a pilot program. I said, no, I don't want my kid to be in this pilot program. He's going to have to be staring at a screen for a lot of his teenage and adult life. This is the key moment where he is an 11 year old figures out how to interact and present his ideas to the world, not to a screen. I feel very strongly about that. Um, and you're not the only one. There's a lot of a lot parents of people, who right? feel that way. Well, it was weird. Like I went and like talked to like a teacher in the hall and they were like, yeah, we're not all into it either, but we got a big grant. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, you should tell people that, you know, it wasn't presented as a choice to the parents. I mean, I'm a tech journalist and I was I went and said, like, I'm not OK with this. Right. So and you have the voice to do that. Yeah. I also like know a lot about it. So I have an opinion. Nobody said to these parents, like, it's a pilot program. We don't know if this is good or not. It's a pilot program. We got this grant. Our school is very lucky to have been chosen for it, but blah, blah, seen as an absolute positive. That I think is where the problem is, is that we've gone forward with technological innovation, assuming that the positive is the only sole reason to go forward. And that is the truth. But as we've seen, we have to also think not just who is this helping, but who could it potentially be hurting? We just have to move a little more cautiously. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And, and I think you point out a fundamental weakness in the way we talk about technology in schools, because just that phrase one-to-one is literally talking about the availability of a device. Yes, It's not saying how it's used. It's not saying whether two kids are using it together to collaborate around an art project. It's not said. It's not in the phrase. Yeah. What you experienced is somebody saying one-to-one to to us means kids sitting alone for two hours with headphones on. Yes. And so you're like, I'm against one-to-one. Yep. But in my mind, I think you're against the way those devices were used. In that particular instance. In that particular instance. Right. Where it's potentially the same device, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but could have been used in another way that maybe you would have felt good about. And and it is being used in other ways that I feel good about in the school. You know what I mean? It's that's where that's where this is so hard to say, like, this is how we do it or we don't do it this way or this is the rule. And that's not there's so much nuance in terms of what the technology is, what service it provides, how you use it, who are the people teaching it, who are the people learning from it. It's big and complicated. And so to me, the best skills are to have the wherewithal to be analytical about it, to know what questions to ask, to constantly be checking How's it going? Is this working for us? Do we like what this is doing? What? Are, how are we measuring the success here? Is the success that like every kid, I, I went to visit another school where they were like, our kids are two years ahead of any other kid at this grade. And I was like, but why? We're all going to die around the same time. <laughs> like, what is the point of that? I don't understand. It's harder yeah. to be a child and a parent yes. and a teacher. There's more questions yeah. to ask. Well, and it's so interesting because there's really, there's actually more options now. Yes. There's more ways you could live. There's There's more places you could put your energy. You actually can, quote, get your child two years ahead. And so you have to ask questions that maybe you've never asked yourself before. Correct. And my answer was very clear. I don't care. 
Like that's not my family's priority or values. Now, why, why can we say that? Because we're privileged enough to, you know, have a home that we own and all kinds of, you know, financial stability that. Right. The conversation may be very different if your kid's two years behind. Yes. Or you're first generation and you're like, this kid needs to earn because he needs to support cousins and grant, like, you know, there are all kinds of reasons not to have the impulse that I had. Yeah. And so. And and it's interesting because I think the equity issue is really important mm. and where you are standing makes a big difference about how you feel about the ubiquity of technology. For sure. If you're someone who's trying to use it as an on-ramp to a middle-class life, it's really, really important to you. And you might be willing to sacrifice some free time and some other pursuits if it's your ticket. Whereas if you're in a position where you have more options, you can be a little more open or maybe you just feel like you have more latitude to say, I want to do this another way. And I, I kind of maybe set up technology to be a little more than it actually is in the way I framed it. But I do think there's an aspect to that. Well, I think the digital privacy conversation speaks to that very much. What I don't want is there to be a world where the rich people get privacy and the poor people don't because they can't afford not to sacrifice their privacy. Or in my case, it's like the upper middle class parents get to say like, it's not good enough for my kid to stare at a screen to do math or whatever. And that's why we have to ask the bigger question, which is like, there's a reason why there's a fourth amendment. It's a right to privacy in this country. How does that extend to our online lives and how does it extend to everyone? And I would say that those of us with that privilege, it's our duty to not just ask for it for our own kids, but to ask for all children. We have to choose the things that everyone deserves and accept that there will be differences when it comes to some of the, the the smaller choices maybe, but the overlying values have to be decided right now. And that I think is where our country is at. It's an amazing moment. It is. And like we're establishing the architecture that could be in place for a long time. It's crazy, right? It is. So, I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. like, well, and you know, ISTE, I feel a huge responsibility here. Good. And in the, on, the, <laughs> on the side of privacy, I think there's a really interesting case when it comes to schools because we know that the way Silicon Valley has gotten so big and so wealthy is they've taken data from users, they've analyzed it, they've used it to optimize the offering, and then it gets better and better and better. And if we say, okay, privacy means we're not going to give any data to any commercial entity, that's the safest route, we're not going to do it. We're actually turning off what may be the biggest lever of innovation and improvement that we that we have available to us. Absolutely. And so how do we make the choices between, and, and I don't want to say choices exactly, we must protect privacy. Yes. That's that's not a choice. I mean, it's a choice that we have to make. We must make the choice to protect privacy. Yes. But how do we then choose which data should be shared and how to share it so that we can get the benefits of innovation? Absolutely. And I think healthcare is the number one, you know, the, the science from just the big data alone is extraordinary. And that's where you see the biggest pluses as far as I can tell right now. You know, we look to Europe and GDPR laws, which people say there's a lot to be wished for. But but we have to start somewhere and testing and asking and, and please forgive the Silicon Valley lingo, but we need to iterate and pivot as we decide how we go forward with this stuff. It's it's overarching. It is overwhelming. And that's where I feel like my work is. How do I keep it from being like, you know what, whatever, I'm out. Who cares? Facebook, you just have my data. 
know how do we keep people engaged and caring and loving the best parts of technology and questioning the parts that they don't feel are serving them or their community or society? How do we get them to think critically about that? So let me delve into that just a little bit. There's a lot of educators, actually every educator I know is too busy. (laughs) They they have too much to do. No kidding. And they're really just drowning in it all. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for them for how they can just regain some of their own mind share. And I know you talked a little bit about this earlier, but you know, what, what would you say to an educator who's just like, it's just too much? I have great news for this educator. Great. And by the way, educator, I am grateful to you for choosing to be an educator. Thank you. Really, you have the most important job, no pressure. But I would also say, here's the great news. Doing nothing is actually working smarter and being more productive. Give yourself permission to not just turn it off because I feel like that's like turning off my, no, like really just relax your mind, relax your body, maybe go for a walk, uh, maybe sit outside and look at the trees or birds or I don't know, dogs, whatever floats your boat, just sit or walk. And I'm not saying meditate because if you do that, that's great. And if you don't, that's cool too. Just think and process and reflect on what has happened to you all week long. Because I think a lot of us confuse being productive with being reflexive or reactive. We think that when we are doing more or checking more things off our checklist or letting people know what we're working on, where we're at on that project and how was that, all of that sometimes keeps us from seeing the big picture about where we can decide to do work that really speaks to the things that matter the most. I would also just say like as a mom who owns her own business, my new thing that I say to myself is you've done as much as you can possibly do today. There will be more opportunities tomorrow. I'm already feeling better. That's so helpful. Good. I know. Well, educators are mostly overachievers. Like it's not going to be the kids who hated school who probably became educators is my guess. Probably not. So um, there's a few. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Type A people. I feel you. It's hard, but let some of it go because you might actually not need to do it. Let your mind wander. It will take you to where you need to be going. Let it go there though. I read an interview and in it, you said, if you could pitch to one person, oh. the question is, if you could pitch to one person, who would it be? Yeah. And you said, John King Jr., who was the secretary of education at the time. Yes. And he was my boss. No way. Yeah. I worked for him. Huh. So, so it's like as close as I'm going to get, basically. Yeah. Right so now. my question is, why John King? I love the guy, but of all the people, I'm just so curious. Why did you pick John? So I remember answering that. When that question was asked to me, it was at a point where a lot of the things that I was um, researching about technology's effects on learning in the classroom, on human development, on brain plasticity, all that stuff was not really being talked about in classrooms. And I felt like it was really important that it was like the secret question that everyone was asking themselves, like at home, like, is it cool that we're like on phones and laptops all the time. Is it good to teach kids like this? Isn't it? And here we are. And I think those questions are being asked. And I think ISTE is leading the way in terms of trying to figure out how do we create structure for teachers who are overwhelmed all the time? How do we turn our students into critical thinkers about technology, into good digital citizens? How do we make sure that our human rights are reflected both offline and online? So I think at the time I was like, we got to figure this out. And now here we are and you guys are doing it. So that's exciting. By the way, John King is one of the best leaders I've seen. 
in really understanding digital learning and where it really fits. So I don't know if you knew it, but no, you I made an awesome choice. Oh, thank you. Well, are you going to have him on your podcast? That's a great idea. It is a good idea. Stay tuned. I look forward to listening to that. So we're almost out of time, but I just have been thinking a lot about storytelling mm. and how powerful it is to know your own story, to own your own story, and to tell your own story, mm. and how that can help you advocate for yourself and for your values. And you are a person who's had a lot of experience and that I admire as a storyteller. Nice. And I'm just curious, you know, what suggestions might you have for educators who are trying to find their voice to tell yeah. the stories that matter to them? I know it sounds a little cheesy and like TED Talks are a little cliched, but I do think I gave a TED Talk, full disclosure. And I also, in that TED Talk, use a, a technique that I use often in my podcasts. And that is to start with a small moment, the moment where it doesn't matter if you're Republican or a Democrat or you're for gun rights or not, all the other things that divide us. It's a small human moment that happened to you. So in my case, I told the story about pushing my child's stroller. This child, this baby was so colicky that he would only sleep if someone was pushing his mommy was pushing his stroller. And I would try to actually take naps while I was pushing the stroller. Like I lost my mind. <laughs> But that moment of like tedium and misery, whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a mother or not, you can relate to it in some way. And then you relate to me. And then as I go on to tell you about how that moment radically changed the direction of how I decided to go with my journalism career and the research that I ended up doing and some of the bigger sort of ideas that I've come to, whether or not you agree with things I've said on this podcast, at least you relate to me as a human and we there's empathy between us and we're listening to each other and we can agree to disagree, but we still can treat each other with respect and kindness. And we need so much more of that. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, Thank you so much for sitting down with us oh, today. Such a pleasure. I'm glad it worked out. Me too. The audio engineer got stuck in the elevator before this. That is going to be the best story ever as soon as he gets over the trauma of it. <laughs> I look forward to hearing it from him. Thank you. The Ed Influencers Podcast is brought to you by ISTE the International Society for Technology and Education. Special thanks to Emily Morris, Trevor Wilson-Stout, Linda Abanya, Caitlin McLemore, and Jisoo Song for supporting the podcast development and production. Reaching your district's goals is streamlined with ISTE's professional learning resources. With ISTE U, ISTE Books, and ISTE Certification for Educators, your team gets top-notch PD on critical ed tech topics like the learning sciences, open educational resources, and future-ready librarianship. Achieve your district's goals and save when you purchase ISTE Professional Learning Resources in bulk. Get the details on these programs at ISTE.org under the Learn tab.